Welcome to the Black Magic Collective podcast presented by Black Magic Design. This podcast is made by filmmakers for filmmakers. Join at blackmagiccollective.com to enjoy free membership and all that comes with it. Now, on with the show. You guys have a great, great session. Uh, looking forward to learning a lot from you guys. Well, thanks, Jen. Appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, um, glad to be here. Um, in addition to uh, being a New York lead for Black Magic Collective, I am also the uh, general manager of uh, Raindance New York. Um, so, yeah, the film festival. So, yeah, we also kind of do that stuff here. Uh, and we're kind of doing these things here together. So it's um, a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of fun here. Um, and then, David, um, I can't wait to, for you guys to meet this guy because – First of all, I, his book came out last uh, November, I think it was, and like this was like one of these books I just could not put down because it's like everything you need to know about writing a micro-budget screenplay. Um, and it's, you got to get it. That's, that, that's all right, so that's the whole thing. We, we don't have to do any more. Um, no, why don't, we, um, why don't we bring him in? Um, and uh, David. How are hey, you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good to see you. Really good to see you. So uh, let's start off. Uh, there was a review of your book on Amazon, and I'm going to read it verbatim. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, the author fills in the gaps opened by many other screenwriting books. He covers how you would realistically turn your script into a film based not just on his experience as a filmmaker and screenwriting professor, but also in extensive interviews with some of today's most amazing indie filmmakers. It's a frank and honest look at the micro-budget scene. Um, now, do you know who wrote that? <laughs> Why didn't you like tell a, us? Well, actually, it was me. Yeah. My mom. Uh, because, like, literally... I I buzzed through that thing and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. This is the stuff everybody needs to know. Um, so I guess the first thing we want to do is kind of set the stage. All right. So because when you get into talking budgets about films, there are a million and one different ways to cut it up. So mm -hmm. why don't we just set the stage and what do you mean by a micro budget film? Like what level? Are we talking? Well, good, good question. And um, conveniently, I'll answer it with the answer I got. When I got the deal to write the book, the publishers just said, let's focus on films made for under $100,000. Okay. So that was the figure they gave me. Um, I, I, you know, in, in Hollywood, um, anything under $50 million is a low budget film. Uh, but I was thinking, I'm when I think um, micro budget, it's two fifty, two hundred fifty thousand dollars and under, in that that neighborhood, maybe okay. even five hundred thousand. Okay. Um, now, do you, do you consider there to be a model for micro budget filmmaking? And if so, what would that um, be? Uh, a model like how to make a a, a low budget yeah. a micro budget film. You know, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't know if anybody here has ever taken the Dove Simmons class, Dove SS Hollywood Film School. Did you take it, Tim? Uh, I, I have this DVD. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I took it I took it 30 years ago, probably almost 30 years ago. He said two to four locations, two to four characters, no exteriors at night. Boom. 
that's that's a that and that's the model I first learned, and maybe I've expanded upon it, but it's pretty tried and true. Uh, I think the the real model, though, I think the if if we're all due respect to Dove Simmons, who you know I think is is a genius of of kind. The thrust of my book, though, is reverse engineering. Take stock of your resources. If you don't have a spaceship or a soundstage that can pass for another planet, don't make a sci-fi film. If your parents own a laundromat or a deli, you write a script set in a laundromat or a deli. Um, so use what you have. Um, my model is, my mantra is, um, don't write a symphony if you can only afford a string quartet. Um, yeah, I like. Uh, all right, so now, what is it about budget filmmaking that makes it? I'm sorry, I missed the part of the question. Sorry. Yeah. So, what is it about micro-budget filmmaking that makes it unique? Unique. Well. Right. Uh, I think for me, and I think part of the excitement is the challenge. You know, how can we pull this off? How can we make a decent film with very few resources? To me, that's kind of fun. You know, honestly, okay, no, I would never turn down a $100 million budget if somebody gave me one to make a film. I don't know what I would do with it. Probably eat really well, feed the cast and crew really well. But um yeah, the, it's it's the challenge. That's the troubleshooting and, and figuring out how how you can do this in um, on a really low budget. Uh, I think it's it's fun. It presents challenges for me as a writer. It's fun to come up with um, ways to keep the story interesting. And in a, in a micro budget film, the script is going to be your main special effect. I think. So it just has to be a great story with twists and turns, dynamic characters and situations. You have to work harder to engage the audience and keep them entertained because you may have, very likely you'll have a lack or, or let's just say compromised production values and um, limited special effects, that kind of thing. So you're not gonna have much in the way of razzle-dazzle factor in the conventional sense. So you have to razzle-dazzle with your story and by extension, your acting. So, all right, in terms of razzle-dazzling with your story, does that kind of render classic story structure, save the cat, hero's journey, all that? uh obsolete not obsolete um but often not effective uh you if, if we're following the okay so the way i think about it is in classic three-act structure and classic if you want to break into hollywood with your screenplay um methodology we all know the first 10 minutes or first 10 pages of a script have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to ha establish your characters, uh, 
introduce the world and have an inciting incident within the first 10 pages. Then following that model, you have an act break on page 30. Well, that for me, and it doesn't always work out this way, but in my mind as a writer, I think, well, what do you do for that 20 minutes between page 10 and page 30? Um, if you lock, if you look at a lot of films, almost by nature, you know, nothing can happen to to dramatically drive the plot along between page 10 and page 30. So in a micro budget film, you often don't have the luxury. Uh, you can't have 20 minutes of your film where essentially nothing, you know, nothing is happening. So you have to pack that 20 minutes with drama and events and just anything to keep the movie um, rolling along and, and, and the audience engaged. Um, okay. So would that then make kind of a talkier movie? Um, my, in my experience, a lot of micro-budget films are talky because, you know, to, to borrow a phrase, talk is cheap. Uh, just, just about the, the, the least expensive thing you can do in a film is have people sitting and talking to each other. Anybody can afford that. And a lot of people do, uh, that then this one benefit, financial benefit of not spending a lot of money, um, on set special effects and everything, just having people talking, that's a benefit, but it comes with a pitfall and that there are a few things that run a greater danger of making your film boring than having people sitting around and talking. So on one level, you have to have people sitting around talking. On another level, you can't have too much of that, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it does. And it actually makes me feel good because I'm working on my first feature and it it's very talky. And it, I, I come from a playwriting background. So, mm -hmm. um, and I guess that kind of begs the question. And again, going, going back to Dove, um, he, he had suggested, and a lot of people have suggested that, uh, you know, filmmakers worried about idea generation and, and that sort of thing. Um, what do you think about, I mean, you know, you're in Philadelphia, my hometown. Uh, you know, I'm up here in Times Square. Um, <laughs> always. That's what we say in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, and we're going to limit the hoagie and cheesesteak talk. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, we're both massive theater towns, right? And uh, yeah. lots of playwrights, lots of scripts just floating about. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, approaching playwrights and asking to adapt their works? Uh it's a double-edged kind of situation. Playwrights, a decent playwright, of course, is going to be adept in the concepts of drama, but writing for the for, for, for two mediums or two art forms that seem, at least on paper, so similar to each other, there are a lot of differences. And in my experience, a number of playwrights really struggle with screenwriting. Uh, playwrights are used to writing long scenes. You know, you don't have, you know, the average scene in a movie is now 90 seconds. 
um, average scene in a play <laughs> might be <laughs> 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So uh, there, there are benefits. And, you know, for a classic example is not in the micro budget realm, but uh, Steven Spielberg hired Tony Kushner to write Munich. Um, Tony Kushner is a Pulitzer Prize award-winning playwright, um, had never written a screenplay before and kind of didn't know how to do it. I mean, he did a great job. He got an assist, later they brought in Eric Roth, but it, it's, a, it's a different thing. So I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I would approach it with some trepidation. Um, now, um, a little something from your book. Um, you'd mentioned in there, you're talking about an essentially focus of, um, a lot of independent filmmakers, micro budget filmmakers, um, and that they're, they're too focused on the technology. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, that comes, that stems at least initially from my experience as a professor. Uh, I teach at a couple film schools here in Philadelphia. And my experience is most, it, uh, generally, I, I, you know, there's not hard science on this. This is just anecdotal. I find that most people who go to film school, go to film school, all due respect, to learn how to push buttons on machines. Film is a mechanical art. Playing with machines to make movies is fun. It's cool. What I'm leading up to is nobody wants to take screenwriting class. <laughs> it's a required class. And in my experience, most people dread it. Um, and it's not, to most people, cool because you don't use a machine to do it. The, the machine is your brain. You actually have to sit and think about the world around you and come up with characters. It's not just like fix the lens or do a cool cut or add in special visual effects with your buttons. It's staring at the wall and coming up with the story. And there's no button to do that. There is, but that's that's a topic for another conversation. Oh, AI uh, screenwriting programs. Yeah. They're out there. They're out there. And I hate to tell you, they're not bad. Not that I use <laughs> them, but I think a lot uh, of people do. Oh, uh, well, you know, what was the... And I don't know if this was like IBM marketing, but it was like they used to say if you put like, you know, 100 monkeys in a room with typewriters, you know, they'd eventually. Write the <laughs> um, I don't know if that was a gag, but, you know. Um, I've seen some so, movies recently that felt like they were written by a bunch of monkeys. Uh, um, all right. Um, sorry, going back to playwrights for a second. So what? Yeah. Um, what do you think playwrights need to understand if they are adapting their work for the screen? Um, the big, the big one is um, cinema. Uh, watching, you know, in in theater, we expect to go and see people speak. Um, when we talk about movies, we're talking about motion pictures. The form is telling stories with motion pictures. And I don't know that a lot of playwrights really think about that. I, I don't know that many playwrights. I mean, I mean, I do know playwrights and I know playwrights who also write screenplays. So, But it is telling stories with pictures. When I first got into 
screenwriting. I thought it was about writing good dialogue. Well, that's a play, uh, all due respect to playwrights, coming up with a good story, but writing good dialogue. And I should say, I should point out here that um, if you asked me who my biggest influences are as a writer, I'm going to tell you a bunch of playwrights. Uh, you know, I came up in the theater and my favorite writers, the, the ones who inspired me are, are playwrights. So um, I think it is a tough, um, a tough transition in playwright. In theater, the writer is God. You don't rewrite David Mamet or Aaron Sorkin or anybody. Um, and the words are, are really taken as gospel, whereas we all know that on a major industry film, you can have literally dozens of writers with their hands in the script. So it's a really different thing. I don't know that uh, I'll stop just short of saying that screenwriters don't get the respect they deserve. Um, but I think a lot of the time it's lip service. That's my two um, Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'll say this. I think that it wasn't until I actually started like editing stuff where I understood, uh, you know, more about, you know, writing. I mean, I, mean, I think mm -hmm. it's made me a better writer because it's like there are things that it's just like, all right, well, I'm never going to get that shot. So why would I, why, why am I even going to put that in the script? I know it's just not. It's just going to end up on a cutting room floor, metaphorically, of course, these days. Yeah, uh, yeah. right. <laughs> um, so one of the other things you talked about was user-friendly screenplays. Uh, tell us more about that. User-friendly. Um, okay, there there is a chapter in the book called uh, Writing for Your Producer. And that's something I do because... You know, somebody is going to have to go out and make this movie, um, and you don't want to make things difficult for them. I was on a producer's message board on LinkedIn a few years ago, and one of the questions was, producers, what is the hardest part of working with screenwriters? Almost all the answers fell down along, along the lines of, most screenwriters don't know anything about production. They don't know what goes into uh, production. So for instance, I got hired to write a really low budget script last year. Um, basically it's a woman lost in the woods in a blizzard. Um, that's, that's two thirds of the movie is a woman lost in the woods in New England during a, a, a a blizzard. And um, at one point I have her fall down and drift off, get, go unconscious, and she fantasizes. So I, fantas I, I had her fantasy originally as her sitting on a sunny beach in a bathing suit with a tall drink and everything. And then I realized, well, how much is it going to add to the budget to zip down to some beach just to shoot this five second scene? I said, that's ridiculous. So I just changed it to she's cozy in her pajamas and fuzzy slippers under a blanket, drinking hot cocoa by the fire. Um, and that's, that, that is utilizing locations we already had. So by user-friendly, I mean, don't 
don't don't come up with things that are going to be difficult to shoot problematic expensive time consuming that kind of thing so just ha keep the production in mind um so you you don't think we should go from you know uh you know paris in one shot to you know um it, it, it would be true I, uh, you know any any excuse to go to paris but <laughs> um you could you could make a film for the cost of you know, a trip to paris and um room and board there um all right what about uh flowery prose what are your thoughts on that flowery prose um yeah, I had a student who did an internship in LA reading scripts for a producer and he came back and he told me, yeah, this producer really likes to see long passages of scene description in a play, like long, like a quarter of a page, half, of, not half a page. But it was this guy's philosophy that if you can write like a novelist in your screenplay, you are a good writer. And I disagree with that. Nobody wants to read a screenplay. The only reason to read a screenplay, I know some people do read screenplays for entertainment, but ideally, you know, a screenplay is like sheet music. You know, it's not a film, just like you, you don't go out to a, 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 a bar and look at people reading sheet music on stage. <laughs> um, a screenplay is an instruction manual for a film. And if you've ever read instruction manuals, some are not very user-friendly. Um, so in terms of flowery prose, I, and my challenge to myself, it's what I do, you know, for fun, because I have no life now. <laughs> um, I challenge myself to say the most in the fewest words, because somebody's just going to want to pick up a screenplay. What's happened in this next scene? Uh, John does the dishes. Great. Not John squeezes organic dishwashing liquid onto his natural sponge and gently caresses each dish. I, you don't need that. Just He washes the dishes. So <laughs> if you want to be flowery, um, write a novel. I'm not saying, you know, I'm a language geek. I'm a word geek. I love coming up with the best word for the best situation, but I'm just not going to use a lot of words. So there's a time and a place for flowery language. I don't think a screenplay is is that time or that place. Yeah, my, um, yeah, my descriptions probably could use a little more. They're just like, eh, she does this, he does that. Well, <laughs> okay, just, at the same time, uh, a mentor yeah. of mine did it. I'm in a tough place because I teach a lot of introductory screenwriting classes. It's a lot of people's first screenwriting class. And I really try to promote a spare, economical, no frills style of writing. Uh, that said, when I read screenplays, when I judge competitions or I read screenplays by friends, I see people veering from that a little bit. And so I asked a mentor of mine and um, he said, yes, I should be teaching introduction to screenwriting students to write in a very spare, no frill style. And then he added, but you, Dave, you could probably stand to jazz your writing up a little bit. <laughs> He's saying for me at this stage and in, in what I've been doing, yeah, I'm, I'm stopping short of calling it a career. 
um, I am what I call a minimum wage screenwriter. And um, if I took the time to actually do the math, which I, I, I never take time to do math, but if I took the time to do the math, I would find that was um, probably pretty, uh, pretty accurate. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to spice up my language a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, and then I did see this, uh, in the chat and we're gonna, well, we'll hold off on that for a little bit. Um, so we'll just put, put a little pin in that one. Um, screenplay competitions. Mm. I knew this question was going to come up. <laughs> so I've modified my answer. I have, I've tempered my answer because, all right, my old answer was don't do it. <laughs> They're a waste of time and money. Here's the thing. Um, and this is what I did early in my career. When I saw a film that I really liked, uh, and this is pre-internet, I would research it, find out where it came from. Who is this filmmaker? How did they get the chance to make this movie? Um, so in approaching screenplay competitions, do some due diligence and find out, has any winning screenplay from this competition ever gone on to be produced? That to me, that's the bottom line because winning a screenplay competition, just my opinion, I don't think does much for you. If the Is the end goal to win a screenplay competition or is the end goal to get your movie made? And um, look at movies you, you like and find out, um, see if you can find an article where the producer says, yes, we heard about the screenplay that that won, you know, the, the Tim Lorge screenplay competition and we bought it. Um, so look at the track record of screenplay competitions. Um, if things are getting produced, great. Um, if not, consider whether it's worth your time or money. You know, a few years ago, a friend of mine suggested that I enter a script into a competition. And I just kind of laughed it off and I said, yeah, right. Entry fee is probably $85 and grand prize is $100. Um, so I went to the site and looked and it was. I was right. It was $85 to enter and grand prize was $100. I'm like, not right. Um, so, all right. So now what are, I guess, some of the, some of the biggest mistakes you kind of see across the board in your students and, you know, just throughout your career? Uh, just general, general screenwriting or specifically micro budget? Uh, either either um big okay biggest mistake i i'm i'm seeing is a lot of people are basing their screenplays off of movies they've seen oh i like that movie now i'm going to go write a different version of it and i realize that in some circles that makes sense you know give me the same thing but different um the old hollywood story uh so uh, you, you see a lot of cliches, a lot of stuff you've seen before, nothing surprising. And I don't know if that's a mistake per se. Um, there's some technical, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a formatting uh, cop. Uh, I, 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 I don't like to see badly formatted screenplays. So um, that's a mistake. 
Um, but um, well, also, I hate to say it, but movies that nobody's going to want to see. Um, and it's it's a, it's really tough because I I like quirky offbeat films, but at the same time, you have to realize that even if you're not making the movie, if somebody else is making the movie, it's going to cost money. There's going to be a lot of effort put into it, and if if nobody's going to see it, are you are you at risk of losing that investment? And and also not having that film and by extension your career go to the next level. So I hate to be too market driven, but you do have to have some sense of what kind of movies people like to see, what does well. Um, I don't know if we covered this, but. Um... Do you think there is an aversion to learning the craft of screenwriting by filmmakers? Good question. Um, and hard to say. Um, some people, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a born writer. My parents were writers. Uh, I've been writing my whole life. So it's something I enjoy and something I'm told I do pretty well. But I have to under, realize that not everyone's like that. Um, so in my experience, uh, people, a lot of people are intimidated by writing and insecure in their own ability to write. So I think that keeps some people out of it. Um, the people who are natural writers will, will, will write anything. They'll write poems, short stories, novels, plays, screenplays. So I, I, you know, either you're really, really drawn to it, um, or you really you want to be involved with film, but as far away from the screenwriting process as possible. <laughs> Which is not to say, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you an interesting story. So I had a screenplay optioned years ago, and the producer hired me to do rewrites for six months, and this producer was great. She just had such insights into the story and such great advice for the story so at one point i said wow you're you're really good at this you should write and she said oh no i can't write <laughs> and i get that so she knew story in and out she inside and out uh she knew she knew um what made a, a good story for a film and she could direct me very well to rewriting my screenplay so it ticked those boxes for her but it's not something she herself was capable of doing um yeah um yeah as someone who failed both english english 10 twice and english 12 <laughs> once and coming from a family of writers it's kind of kind of weird that i loved writing <laughs> yeah so, um, anywho, <laughs> uh, what about screenwriting? Hacks. What do you got for that? Screenwriting. I'm sorry, what? Oh, hacks. Hacks, yeah. Hacks. Not hacks, sure. screenwriters. <laughs> well, there's some of those, but, um, um, well, hacks for, for, um, micro budget films, since yeah. that's the, that's the subtitle of the book. 
One of my favorites is um, breaking up scenes. So we were talking a while ago about how in a micro budget film, it's always, it's very often a struggle to keep things, excuse me, active, vibrant and lively. You, you are often stuck with people sitting around talking. So for example, I, I, I wrote a scene in a film and I'm writing it and I'm writing it and I finished writing it. It was six pages long. And I thought, whoa, that's six pages is too long to watch two people sit and talk. So it's a father and a son sitting in the living room having a conversation. And I just split it up. I had them go into the kitchen for two pages and then back to the living room for two pages. So it, it's I didn't change a line of dialogue, but it's just the there's motion and there's activity. I, I, I did add some um, symbolic objects and gestures to the scene. Uh, there's, there's good action there. Um, so that's, that's my favorite hack. If you have a scene, sometimes you have a lot of information that you have to express and it has to be expressed verbally. But um, like I said before, watching people talk on screen can get really boring really fast. So you just have to have things going on while I talk. So that's one of my favorite hacks. Uh, of course, we talked about reverse engineering your story so that you're utilizing available locations and resources. Um, that's number one. And um, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of others. <laughs> um. So now, all right, so your reverse engineering, is that along the lines of like your story engineering and you know, your blueprints and- Yeah, exactly. It's take stock of what you have, <clears throat> what you're capable. Like I said before, and I actually said this to a filmmaker um, last week, I said, it's actually a musician who wants to start dabbling in the film. And so that's where I said, don't write a symphony for an 80 piece orchestra write a string quartet for four people. That's 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 the big one. All right, um, so now, all right. So when we were doing our show prep um, and you were talking about the story that set you on the path. And I thought this was just a fascinating story. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. The, the yeah. banister. The story that set you on the path. Yeah. Being a micro sure sure yeah this this is it's funny because this is the story that really set me on the path that really inspired this book and yet somehow did not make it into the book so basically right after film school i got a job on a low budget indie film and i loved it i i worked in every department um i was on set once for 45 hours straight not recommended, but you know, it's, 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 it's a nice thing to say at a cocktail party or in a zoom or a conference like this, um, worked every department, um, finished that on a Saturday. And then the next Monday I went to work on a big studio film and I was in one position the whole time did the same job. Uh, I was the, uh, set construction department runner which means i basically bought wood <laughs> i drove i drove 200 miles a day buying wood and hardware so anyway one day they sent me they, they said 
Dave, we need you to go up to the airport and uh, pick up this mahogany banister we just ordered. Here's a check for $3,500. I thought, you need a mahogany banister for this film? I mean, couldn't you just get balsa wood or pine and paint it uh, to look like mahogany? Wouldn't that be cheaper and less wasteful? And they're like, no, it has to be mahogany. So I go out, I get the mahogany banister, I deliver it. Months and months and months go by. The movie finally comes out and I'm like, all right, I got to see how integral this banister is to this movie. So I'm really watching for this banister in the movie. And I finally see the banister in the movie. It's in the film for 10 seconds and then it gets burned. Wow. It got burned. They burned it. That the house burns down, mahogany banister and and everything. I thought, wow, you spent $3,500 on something that's going to be in the film for 10 seconds. And I'm sure everyone on set justified it and was fine with it. But to me, it really didn't sit well. And right then and there, this is 1988. Um, I said, if I ever get to make a film, I'm not wasting money on anything. Every any expense I make will be justified and important. So yeah, that that's that's what the banister. Wow. That's fantastic. And I'm sure that happens on every single film, uh, major production, but it really it really jumped out at me. Oh wow, that is amazing! Wow, somebody knew that. How did you, David? David Reed knew that movie. Oh, he must have read my. He must have read somewhere. Uh, yes, David Reed. Why don't, we, uh, yeah, why don't we start taking some questions? <laughs> yes, I, I I hated to trash it, but um, yeah, that was that was the original Pet Cemetery. <laughs> All right, so Imardi would like to know about some of your most creative solutions to script budget constraints. Uh, sure, um, most creative solutions. Um, you know, uh, kind of what I was talking about before, uh, about making the story as rich, deep and, um, dramatic as possible. I, I can't, I'm trying to think of a specific, oh, here's a, here's one. Um, believe me, <laughs> this is, this is a whole other story. Um, I actually hear this movie, the screenplay of mine, I hear, I can't believe I'm saying this, I hear through 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 the grapevine that this this screenplay of mine is is actually shooting in LA right now. Um, I can't confirm it, which is a whole other story. But I've been told this is this is shooting in LA right now. Anyway, it takes place. the va The vast bulk of it takes place in. There's four main characters, and um, the bulk of the movie takes place in their apartments. That's four, I have my, my numbers right, um, four apartments. And so the plan was, I'm not producing it. I don't, I, I don't know how they're getting around this in the actual production. But when I wrote it originally, the plan was to use one apartment and just dress it four different ways. So one apartment was going to stand in for four different apartments. So that was, that's one of my favorite creative solutions. I hope that answers the question. Uh, what else? All right, from Sasha Schuyler. 
uh, would a contained film be more appealing to producers as opposed to a film with multiple locations, but that is actually cheaper than a contained film? Wow, that's a good one. So you're saying, uh, if we're talking bottom line, bottom line is bottom line. Um, if there are two equally, two, two equally good screenplays, um, I think it, it, to, to most people, I think they might go with the cheaper option. It seems like, um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to say because it really depends. Um, I would say, I would say most producers are a little wary of doing a one location film. Uh, just because of the reasons I laid out, there's always a concern that uh, it'll become static, stagey, and boring. And the real uh, the real trick is to avoid that. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, I'll I'll uh, mention the film Coherence by Jim Burkett. Um, one location. Uh, that is a real example of letting the dialogue and the acting. Um, it was largely improvised. Um, I don't think there was a formal script, but that's a case where the story is the special effect. And this is a movie that has a science fiction element. So it's similar, the, the classic one is Primer, um, made for $7,000. And um, the, the dialogue is the special effects. And it's also a science or science fiction oriented script. script. That's interesting. Um, see, we got anything else there, Kayla? Uh, from Fun Flash Forward, I'm trying to write a contained film, but need to concentrate more uh, on more action and less dialogue. Any advice for contained films? Yeah, that's tricky. Um, it's a great challenge for you. Are you talking about doing a contained film that's not dialogue heavy? Um, that would be a challenge, but a really good challenge. I mean, you, the the story just has to it just you just have to have things happen. So I don't know if we talked about this before when the the topic of structure came up. But uh, for instance, when I was writing the screenplay for my feature Stomping Ground, I knew that I couldn't use three act structure um, because there would have been that twenty minutes where nothing happens. So I basically said every seven to 10 minutes, I'm going to have, I called it, you know, an act break. It wasn't maybe technically an act break, but I just made sure that every seven to 10 minutes, there was a major turning point in the story that a new complication, a new direction, you, you just have to keep the story going. And it, 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 it makes it sound like I'm talking about an action film. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be an action film, but uh, but I'm, I'm, I almost now want to do a write a contained screenplay with not much dialogue. I hope that helped. Uh, and then another one from Imardi. Uh, any examples of a time when you held your ground about something that needed to be in a project? Sure. <laughs> okay, this is this is a bad example of this. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, so um, I was I was shooting uh, my my feature Stomping Ground, and this was a film that I shot in twenty four hours. Um, so it was it was a really intense production, and 
it was moving. I thought it was moving along pretty well, but at a certain point, we were starting to get crunched for time. And my producer and assistant director came to me and said, look, we have to cut this scene. And I was like, no, 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 but, but, but. And I was like, we're cutting the scene. I'm like, but, 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 we're, and they, we're cutting the scene. I'm like, wait, isn't this my film? Um, <laughs> so we had to cut the scene. And later that night, um, one of the other producers came to me and said, see, I told you we should have cut that scene from the beginning. Um, so the scene was cut. I was disappointed. One of the actors was really devastated because it was his big scene. And it took me a while to digest it, but I really, I really realized uh, that the scene did have to be in the movie. It really should have been in the movie. And I think that, I don't know that the movie suffers for the lack of that scene, but it would have been a lot better with that scene. And it did, you know, the, the producer tried to tell me that the scene did not have to be in the movie because it wasn't ticking the boxes of what a scene's supposed to do. My, my general take on that is a scene should drive the main plot or one of the subplots, provide exposition, um, promote the themes of the film, what you're trying to do. Um, that, and if it's not doing any of that, it shouldn't be in the movie. And in retrospect, that scene that got cut did the, did everything that a scene should do. It was a good scene. And um, I guess this is an example of me not standing my ground or I was standing my ground, but I got knocked off it. <laughs> oh, wow. That's wild. All right, uh, Matthew Spade, in your book, you mentioned 90% of filmmaking is problem solving. Give us an example of how this applied to your film Stomping Grounds. Yeah, good, good question. Um, so Stomping Ground was a real experiment. It was a, a um, exercise in an experimental approach to filmmaking. I thought to myself, you know, if I had been hired to shoot a play or a concert or a live event, how would I do it? I would show up with at least four cameras, four, five, six cameras, and the event would start, the cameras would go on, the event would end, and the cameras would go off. And so Stomping Ground, the screenplay, is essentially a one-act play. And I decided to shoot it in 24 hours, partly because I wanted to see if I could make a film in 24 hours. Um, but that's how I was going to shoot it. Um, we rehearsed extensively for a month before production. So the actors were very well prepared. Everybody knew their lines, knew their character. And my plan was to say action, um, have four cameras rolling at once and have them actually do the entire script without a break um, and just shoot it all and then start again and just do that three or four times. Um, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but in theory, it made sense to me. In reality, it didn't work. Um, we did the first, on the first shot, the first couple shots uh, on the first day of shooting, uh, it wasn't working. The producers, AD and I huddled and just said, and we just said, you know what, this isn't working. And the cinematographer, we said, this isn't going to work. So right there and then, the producers and the AD came up with a whole new shooting schedule. Um, 
just completely threw out my original plan, um, came up with a new shooting schedule, and we still got it done in two uh, 12-hour days. Wow. <laughs> but that, that, that's because I designed it to be that. I said, I'm writing a script that's going to be shot in 24 hours. Wow. That's... that's um... Like, I know that there are, um, you know, there are projects here in New York that do that kind of thing where it's like they'll take a weekend and like mm -hmm. they'll start writing it um, like at midnight on Friday or something. And then, oh, yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Midnight yeah. Sunday or whatever. It's like it's done. Yeah. yeah. If I had it all, if I had it to do all over again, I would have shot it in 36 hours. <laughs> Not 24 hours. Another another 12 hours would have really helped. But there you go. Just just for sleep or <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Uh let's see, do we have anything else? Um all right, I think uh I think that's about it. David, I want to thank you for coming in. Um hey, thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Black Magic Collective Podcast. If you're having fun talking tech in the biz with us, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please leave reviews as it helps others find the show so we can keep making great content for you. We're also on all of your favorite podcast apps, as well as YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please visit blackmagiccollective.com to join and be part of the filmmaker community. All of our events and programs are free to filmmakers, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Black Magic Design.